a devotee of scrambled eggs. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Wait, that should be the title of this podcast. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yes. cut this out or also we'll just use it. This is the University of Kentucky MFA podcast. I'm Max Leneve. And I'm Sophie Wiener. We sat down with poet Ada Limon. She's the author of four books of poetry, including Lucky Wreck, This Big Fake World, Sharks in the Rivers, and most recently out from Milkweed Editions in 2015, Bright Dead Things, a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. She began the conversation by reading us her poem, Oh Please Let It Be Lightning, from this most recent collection. This poem was written after a visit with my partner's mother who said that his great-grandmother had either died in childbirth or had been struck by lightning. And um, I thought that's a pretty big difference. Yeah, that is. Um, so I, uh, this poem came out of that, a road, a road trip back after that. Oh, please, let it be lightning. We were crossing the headwaters of the Susquehanna River in our new car we didn't quite have the money for, but it was slick and silver, and we named it after the local strip club next to the car wash, the Spearmint Rhino. And this wasn't long after your mother said she wasn't sure if one of your ancestors died in childbirth or was struck by lightning. There just wasn't anyone left to set the story straight, and we started to feel old, and it snowed. The ice and salt and mud on the car made it look like how we felt on the inside. The dog was asleep on my lap. We had seven more hours before our bed in the bluegrass would greet us like some southern cousin we forgot we had. Sometimes you have to look around at your life and sort of nod at it, like someone moving their head up and down to a tune they like. New York City seemed years away, and all the radio stations had unfamiliar call letters and talked about God, the one that starts his name with a capital and wants you not to get so naked all the time. Sometimes there's a halfway point between where you've been and everywhere else and we were there. All the trees were dead and the hills looked flat like in real bad landscape paintings and some nowhere gallery off an interstate but still looked kind of pretty. Not because of the snow, but because somehow you found a decent song on the dial. And there you were, with your marvelous mouth, singing full-lunged, driving full speed into the gloomy thunderhead, glittery and blazing and alive. And it didn't matter what was beyond us, or what came before us, or what town we lived in, or where the money came from, or what new night might leave us hungry and reeling. We were simply going forward, riotous and windswept, and all too willing to be struck by something shining and mad and so furiously hot it could kill us. We were discussing that one, and I was, um, I think Sophie felt the same way. I was really struck by that reading it because when I finished, I kind of looked back at it and realized that's it's one, I mean, it's really on a literal level, one moment mm-hmm. riding in a car. Mm-hmm. And then we get that whole, the poem discusses so much but it's really just just from a, a seemingly singular moment moment yeah. yeah 
I feel like for me, um, one of the things that I find fascinating about working in language is um, the fact that on some levels it's always an effort in failure by the fact that we're never getting what's in our mind completely right on the page. But the attempt is really what I'm interested in. Um, and so moments and capturing moments or noticing all the things that are around me um, is sort of an effort to always pin the dragon of the mind to the page so that what I'm doing is um, focusing on all the parts that are happening in one, not just a moment, but sometimes even just one breath. And I'm trying to follow not just thought process, but the way that a new image would influence thought. And so it's not just a strict narrative, but that you're getting really the emotional content, the thought process, as well as all the sort of world swirl that's happening all the time, um, which is sort of how we live by that, that we can live holding this idea of survival and day-to-day -day tasks along with sort of the giant looming subjects of why are we here? What's gonna happen next? What do our lives mean, right? That we're always walking around with all of these thoughts sort of colluding together. So yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by how much we miss <laughs> in our day-to-day -day life because we're thinking of the future or the past and not living in the present moment. It really strikes me that you say that because I think where you, you've spoken about how you've become more and more autobiographical. And I think there is, at least there was for me, I think when I started writing poems that I, it was all autobiographical because mm -hmm. that's what I knew. And then, you know, you go to your first workshop and they give you these three poets to read and you're like, I should do this thing. Mm -hmm. I should do this other thing. And I think maybe one of the problems that I have had is sort of losing sense of the, you stay autobiographical, but also like talk about very large things and aren't afraid, it seems to me, to make big statements. And I think that's something that a lot of poets, at least in my age group right now, are more and more afraid to do. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, how, how do you get back? Was that ever an issue for you? Like, were you always, did you never have like the moment where you felt like you had to veer off track and go home? Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I really love the idea of autobiography um, in poetry and as well as in nonfiction and essays um, and how it seeps into fiction, etc. But um, I think I, too, started my writing career writing about the self, right? Most poems were, poems were about my mother, my father, my brother, right? The, the childhood poems. Um, and then, you know, you do veer away from that a little bit because you see that everyone's doing it, right? And that everyone has. And then you think, okay, should I do something different? And then you kind of play with the lyrical, right? You go back to the song. Um, and I think that was really healthy for me because going back to the song and staying there for a bit, which Lucky Wreck does a lot, it's still autobiographical, but it pays attention to the song. This Big Fake World is almost entirely narrative, which is the second book. It's, an, it, it's a book of fiction. Um, so it's a, it's a novel in verse. 
Um, and that was also fun because it got me out of my body and out of my mind and was able to kind of be in another world. And then Sharks in the Rivers was very much oriented into the song. Um, still had some big autobiographical moments. Um, and then when I moved to the fourth book and I was putting it together, I was reading a lot of contemporary poetry. And I felt like there was this moment where I realized that everyone was interested in obfuscating and there was a lot of dancing around things that um, no one was just saying the thing and I thought what would happen if you just said the thing and how would that change my work and what would I what would that mean to me as a poet and so that was a huge real shift for me in my work and I still think about it all the time. And I don't think it's going to go away. I think what happened was I sort of broke open for something with this book. And the next book already has stuff in it that is me saying the thing. And it doesn't mean, however, that you're not denying the song. The song has to be there all the time. You know, the sound and the lyric have to be completely there and pulsating. But at the same time, why are we so scared of speaking our truths? We are, I think. I, I mean, for me, more and more, and, and Max can attest to this because he's been very present in the workshop, uh, but there's like this need to code everything. Mm-hmm. I can't just say it. And so much of what I've read is, is really all about that. And I ask myself that all the time, like, why can't? do I not have anything to say or like can I just say a thing Mm -hmm. and it it really is I don't know what that push is Mm. it was interesting like we were talking um, we're both TAs for the intro to creative writing classes Mm -hmm. and it was you with Manuel um, in our class taught by Eric Reese Um, and so he in my class showed the students some of your poems I think we looked at service and um, state bird and mm-hmm. how to triumph like a girl um, and I got the sense from it was almost like some of the students um, I think they like thought it was some kind of trick mm. that it was like you know that it was there you get it you know it wasn't not everything was a symbol for something else mm-hmm. or not everything was was completely a metaphor for something else but that was interesting that I guess just shows how sort of ingrained that idea maybe has become. Right, that I have to figure out what the meaning of this is as opposed to what's on the page is actually there. I mean, I think that's fascinating because everyone always says, well, you know, tell me the the metaphor of horses in your poem. You know, you you use the horses. And I laugh. I said, you know, I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and, you know, my partner's in the thoroughbred industry, and these are real horses. (laughs) This is... This is not just the metaphor of horse, but the actual, the actuality of horse. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting, right? That they're still sort of driven by what's the metaphor mean, yeah. right? And that, w- that what is the symbolism? Um, and that we've come so far away from just being open and honest in our poems that everyone's still looking for the underlying thing that they're either missing or they feel like they're supposed to figure out on another level. 
<laughs> it was interesting for you to watch that. I, because you, you know, you had um, the students for Manuel's class read those few poems, and that uh, just before you come to read for them, I had them read service. So I just wanted them to see range. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you can just, you have so much space to work with. Mm-hmm. Like it's just every moment. I feel like that's something that we've sort of lost a little bit. Like well, I think there's a level of defining that, you know, has happened where people are like, well, are you a narrative poet or are you a lyric poet? And I'm a narrative lyric poet, <laughs> you know, and, and I think most of us are. And I think that's really beautiful. But we sort of be, you know, because there's been this sort of school that we have to choose one or the other, you know, I think that that sort of harmed us in some ways because we think, oh, well, I write these little lyrics or I write these, you know, short poems that are primarily interested in in sound and image. Um, and then that means that you can't write another poem that deals directly with a narrative story. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating to me that um, we don't allow ourselves to do that more. Because, like I said yesterday, um, you know, poets write poems. We don't write books. The books come, but we write poems one by one. And we write the poem that we need that day or in that moment. And that's going to shift from every moment. And that, that's something, too, that I feel like there's this other push, too, for, like, the book. You need to be thinking about, you know, what is this whole composition to be? Who, what's the narrative going to be here? And, you know, as if we're all going to, like, write The Wild Iris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're not. I mean, and it's a beautiful book, but I, I don't... I think that there's such emphasis on, like, having the book be the thing mm-hmm. for a lot of people that... I find myself at least getting very hung up in how does this one poem progress to the next poem? What's mm-hmm. the next poem going to be? And it no longer is about just writing yeah. a poem. And sometimes that can be good, right? Sometimes it can be good because it helps you give yourself prompts for writing the next poem. But it also can be silencing because you can think, oh, I, if you sit at a bus stop and have an experience and the impetus for a poem, which we know is a very physical thing, right? Like actually almost hurts, right? When you start to think of it and it's exciting and you're having this like physical reaction, like, oh, I know what to write about. Um, But if you are working on a book that is a progression of certain things and you know that you have to do, you know, follow the sort of point A to point B timeline or progression, you might suppress that natural instinct for that particular bus stop poem because it doesn't fit with the rest of the poems. And that's where I feel like it can actually be damaging. Because you can sort of hold back and be like, well, no, I'm writing a poem about the apocalypse in Alaska, right? So everything has to be about that. But I just had this amazing conversation with my you know, Native American grandmother about the pipeline, and I need to figure out how this works into my life, but it doesn't work into the book. And that poem still needs to exist. And I feel like that's that's where we get into a damaging situation when we think only about books and uh, less about poems. Especially those those moments of conversation that launch you into a sort of moment of poetry that I love and I see less and less of. 
I think, as I've been accumulating new books of poems. And I just really, I so admired that because I feel like you've just gone astray. Mm -hmm. And every day there will be someone, like, you know, someone will say something and be like, oh, write that poem, write that poem where you had that conversation. And I just couldn't bring myself to find that voice to do it. And I wonder, like, oh, where did that voice go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I think that we all sort of have that urge to, you read the book and then you try to write like the other author. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we get so far away from that maybe mm-hmm. that we have to ask ourselves, you know, like what, what do I sound like? What is my voice? Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm a copycat. So when it comes to reading books, I'm always like trying to do whatever is, you know. But I'm lucky that I like now I, my voice is pretty strong, so that my voice comes through. Um, but I think in the very beginning, I was very much influenced. I mean, my thesis reads like Sharon Olds and Marie Howe, just with Ada's language transposed on top you know I mean and they were my thesis advisors you know so of course like I was obsessed with them they were great teachers and I read all their books and I followed their advice and they've made me so so much of a better poet but um but I do think that a lot of that just comes with time too with like living in your own language and being comfortable enough in your own language um but it's hard not to look at someone else and go oh oh how, how did I do that? I want to try that. And I love that. I love putting down a book and thinking, okay, let's see if I can give this a shot. That's one of my favorite feelings in the world. And because, you know, not all books give you that feeling. No. Yeah. So what I was telling Sophie, that's something I noticed reading your books. That, and I kind of laughed to myself thinking that, like, usually the compliment, right, is that I couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. Of your book, but I was constantly putting your book down because <laughs> I was grabbing my notebook <laughs> to write. To write. Oh, I love that. Um, which, yeah, to me is the greatest thing that can come from mm-hmm. from picking up a book. And I think it, you know, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it's kind of like you were saying is that it made me realize, you know, oh, this moment I experienced that that's that's worthy of mm-hmm. of writing. That, or even just the kind of the way you move from those small moments to such bigger things is inspiring and something I I want to do in poetry something that's hard to pull off mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. good yeah, yeah my favorite thing is to the the writer that leaves you leads you to the pen and the page is there anyone that does that for you right um, now has you know every time I read Larry Levis I go back to the page I think he's someone that constantly I, I think Marie Howe's new work is stunning um her Mary Magdalene poems are just phenomenal. The Seven Devils poem is just blows my mind. Um, I think uh, Yusuf Komunyaka always leads me there. Um, Natalie Diaz, uh, Alberto Rios, those two definitely lead me back to, to trying to figure out something like, oh, okay, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Um, and it shifts, you know, sometimes it's, it changes from day to day and who I need and, and, and what I need in the moment. But, um, but yeah, that's my favorite feeling. That sort of, 
you know, I think about Larry Levis with the, with the book Elegy, which I think is my favorite book, um, and how strange it is to think that he didn't put it together, but, you know, it's put together posthumously with Phil Levine and David St. John, and um, they did such a great job in putting that book together that it feels like it's such a natural progression, and so... I think a lot about him, especially when I'm writing about horses, and I think, okay, so many people have write, written about horses, I want to be able to get this right, and I feel like he does it so well, you know, and also his poems that deal a little bit with the racing world, you know, they're gritty, and they're dark, and they're not this sort of, you know, beauty sanitized look at the racing world, and they're so for me, I think, you know, like Elegy with a Bridle in, in His Hand is one of my favorites. Um, but that always leads me back, you know. And there are poems that I'm always trying to write. I think about um, Leonard Cohen, who just passed away. Um, and one of my favorite endings ever is the ending to um, Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2 um, in the last line after he does this incredibly beautiful, you know, sweet but sad, you know, song and ode to Janis Joplin. The last line is... That's all I don't even think of you that often. Like how that to me is an ending that you that's a stunning ending because it allows for the fact that there's also a sense of you're gone. Goodbye. You know, like you don't get you get to be yes, yes, I will celebrate you and honor you and do this and and talk about your heart. You know, and he begins like, you know, you were famous, your heart was a legend. You were talking so brave and so true. Like all of these things. But then he also has to he has to get that line in that allows you to also grieve and realize that that's what happens with death. Even to someone who's famous and even to someone who's a legend. That eventually you won't be thought of that often. And that to me is just, it's a stunning ending. And I feel like I've been trying to write that ever since I heard the song, you know, 20 years ago. I had my students read There Are Two Worlds mm. by Larry Lovers because it's one of my favorite poems I mm -hmm. think of all time. It, they didn't, they did not seem very excited about the fact that he could write about like Mark Twain and horse racing and relationships in one <laughs> poem, but I was, uh, he has this line right in the middle of it, I think, and I think it's something like, if that is all, I would like to go home. And oh, it breaks my heart every time. Mm -hmm. What would you tell to young writers who are just maybe starting out about how to get into it, how to go into poetry, especially for those who maybe are afraid of it and think that, you know, there's so much coding involved Yeah, in trying to read between the lines? I think for me, I mean, especially right now, right, like be, uh, right after this election that has been so hard and um, really just spirit damaging, um, that I think that we need poets more than ever now. Um, and I think that we also need a radical hope. Um, and I think poetry is a place for radical hope. Um, and I think it always will be. And part of it is because it pays attention to the moment and it pays attention to the beauty 
and complexity that celebrates humanity. Um, and I think we need it more than ever. So I think this is a time that we need to call back to poetry and to rise to it. Um, if only if it's saying again and again that my singular voice has value in sort of this storm of, of hate and, and um, darkness that feels all around us at the moment. Um, so I would say that first begin by valuing your own voice. And it's hard. It's hard in a place, especially if you don't feel valued. Um, but to know that, that, you know, this is how all songs begin, that valuing the voice and knowing that you are important enough to be worthy of writing your story down um, and to not give up in that, in that continual sense of recommitting to the world in that way. Radical Hope sounds like a great title. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> I was wondering if maybe we could ask you to read one more of poem. Of course, I'd be happy to. Uh, Paul and Rosa, very, very early when we moved to Kentucky, um, and we didn't even have a coffee pot, and we had one little table in the kitchen, and both of us worked at that same table. So we were probably only here, had been here for maybe a month. In the country of resurrection. Last night we killed a possum out of mercy in the middle of the road. It was dying, its face was bloody, the back legs were shattered. The mistake I made was getting out of the car. You told me not to. But I wanted to be sure, needed to know for sure that it could be not be saved. Someone else had hit it. The sound it was making the sound folded me back into the airless car. Do it. Do it fast. I lowered my head until the thud was done. You killed it quiet. We drove home under the sickle moon, laundry gone cold and dry on the line. But that was last night. This morning, the sun is coming alive in the kitchen. You've gone to get us gas station coffee, and there is so much life all over the place. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Of Thank course, you so of course. And I have very much enjoyed getting to hear you read now, or at least I've enjoyed it very much hearing you read these three times. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Ada Lamone reading In the Country of Resurrection from her collection Bright Dead Things. I'm Max Leneve. And I'm Sophie Weiner. And this has been the University of Kentucky MFA podcast. I wanted to also ask about Ghosts is a product of UK's Visiting Writers series. Find out more on the University of Kentucky MFA website. Our theme music is Mitchy Puked by the wonderful Parker Hobson. Many thanks to UK's Media Depot for tech resources and support.
Yeah. 